feminism. Today is feminism. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. Let's start with a little nigun together. Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. We're going to start with a little poll before we jump into debate eight for today. Okay, here comes your uh, poll number, your poll. Are men and women different? Option one, men and women are exactly the same, bracketing some biological differences. Option two, men and women are a little different, but should be treated exactly the same, and all of Judaism should be fully egalitarian. Option three, men and women can have some separate spaces since the differences are real, but all when all together, all should be egalitarian. Option four, men and women have different spiritual orientations. Gender distinctions in Judaism are often helpful. And option five, men and women are fundamentally different. Both should be fully respected, but understood differently. Okay, so cast your vote here. Do you more or less think men and women are exactly the same? I, I, again, I'm using a gender binary here, um, but I, but uh, but uh, that you know, based on the traditional frameworks, I think that'll mostly make sense, or mostly the same, or radically different. And given those differences, how Jew, how Jewish practice should be structured. Um, okay, let's see your votes. Let's see, uh, let's see if everyone has voted. We can get the results. If they haven't, we'll give them another moment. Okay, here's our results. This poll, of course, never includes all the various options, but 0% of people here think men and women are exactly the same, bracketing some biological differences. Okay, 29% think um, men and women are a little different, but should be treated exactly the same, and all of Judaism should be fully egalitarian. 57% believe men and women can have some separate spaces, since the differences are real, like women's, women's book club, or a men's prayer group, or whatever it is. But when all together, if everyone's together, it should be all egalitarian. Nobody thinks men and women have different spiritual orientations. Gender distinctions in Judaism are often helpful. Uh, um, and 14% believe men and women are fundamentally different. Both should be respected, but understood differently. Okay, again, an imperfect poll because uh, as Cheryl pointed out over there, um, the, the, some of them don't even mention uh, the, the, the spiritual component. Okay, so friends, what we're gonna look at today is the great debate of feminism. Now, it might sound like the debate is feminist versus anti-feminist. That's not how we're gonna frame this. We're going to frame this as paradigm-shifting feminism versus traditional feminism. Why am I doing that? Um, well, firstly, it's worth acknowledging that the dominant position throughout Jewish history would be neither of those. The, di the, the dominant position would not be feminist. That would be anachronistic. It would be about preserving patriarchy and preserving matriarchy. Today, politically, we talk a lot about patriarchy, but, but usually it would be about preserving both the power of the patriarchy and the matriarchy. And, um, uh, but, but the camp that we're not acknowledging, but still very much exists in every denomination, even if it's not at the core of those denominations, 
is the anti-feminism. And the anti-feminism says to keep balance and stability and community, um, community strength, men should lead in society and women should hold families together. And if you challenge that order, then you have challenged the foundation of everything that keeps order and stability and everything that's good in the world. Children won't be raised properly, the work, you know, and the home won't be maintained, whatever the case is. So, so now, now to be clear, um, the anti-feminists, I, 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 the, the ones I'm giving credibility to at least, are not uh, the sexist ones, the fully sexist ones. The sexist ones are ones who don't care about women's dignity and women's rights and women's opportunity, but they are people who are have a traditional orientation towards gender. And to be sure, they are fully opposed to violence against women, are opposed to if a woman is in the workplace not being paid equally, opposed to women not having uh, full rights in that workforce. Uh, nonetheless, they still fundamentally believe as a liberal or a conservative, as a reformed Jew or an Orthodox Jew, that the society will run better if predominantly men are in public leadership positions and women predominantly are maintaining homes and taking care of, of children. Now that might sound incredibly offensive to some or archaic to some, but that view is still very widely held by many women and by many men. Um, and um, now, now let me make another point because feminism as I'm stating is very recent. It's a very recent phenomenon, what we call feminism in Jewish history of millennia. And I'm not creating this as a Jewish problem, but as a human problem, why? Because we might say, oh, why was Judaism not feminist until a few decades ago? But the same question applies to humanity. Why was humanity all patriarchal until a few decades ago, right? Um, and, and that, which is not to imply that all the problems are resolved in humanity or Jewishly, but really that, that it doesn't even enter the discourse um, and the disparities are still so great. And so, um, and so it is a human problem of every, every uh, country, of every religious group, not just a Jewish problem. And yet we're gonna look at it through a Jewish lens. And so um, the other thing I wanna acknowledge before starting is that um, uh, on a comparative front, Israeli feminists are dealing with something different than American Jewish fundamentalists, excuse me, American Jewish feminists. Why is that um, over the last decades? Because Israelis are thinking about a society building, building society. They're thinking about women in the army. They're thinking about women um, women in the workforce, right? They have control of an Israeli of an Israeli government, and so they're talking society wide. The, and then and then there's no middle ground. There's either chilonim, there's secular Israelis, or there's ultra orthodox uh, Israelis. Neither are interested in women's ritual. I mean, you know, usually that the, the ultra orthodox, the women don't want to participate um, and aren't allowed to anyways. And in the secular world, what do they want to do with traditional Judaism? So they're looking at society. They're not looking at Jewish practice. American Jews over the last decades, where, were the where was the battle of feminism fought? In Jewish institutions. Yes, there were Jewish women and men involved in, in women's equality work in America at large, but that's not a Jewish space, right? That's just about American society. If you were a Jewish feminist, you were talking about women being called to the Torah, women being ordained, women being on the boards of Jewish nonprofits, right? You're talking about Jewish institutional life. Right? And so that's a big divide between Israelis and American Jewish feminists. Now, Christian, Christian feminists have, have, have a notably uh, 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 bigger problem than Jewish feminists on one front. Anyone, anyone want to take a stab? What would that have be? It has to do with the nature of God? Oh, yeah, Eileen? Well, we know that in the Catholic uh, religion, women are not permitted to be priests, and they only just recently permitted altar girls. So in Catholicism, I think women are considered a second class. Okay. Okay. Good. So you're you're going to a you're going to a whole other uh, a whole other realm of the social realm, which which very much is comparable to the Jewish realm in terms of how these things develop. What I was pointing to on a basic theological level is when God exists in the male flesh, right? Divinity is bound up with male gender, right? There is there is in some churches a man on the wall. I mean Jesus Christ on the wall. 
Um, and according to some, he is your pathway to salvation. That yes, that he is a part of divinity and he is a man. He's not a woman, right? Um, and so uh, Jews do not have a gender problem with God. Now, no, 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 I, I think I overstated that. Jews have all kinds of problems, right? But Judaism in its, <laughs> in its full richness does not need to have a problem with gender because um, God is not a man. God is not a man. No, 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 nobody argues. There's no thinker who's taken seriously in Jewish theology who argues God ever existed in the form of a man, right? And so that gender issue is gone. Um, where does the gender issue still exist with, with, um, with uh, gender and divinity? In that Hebrew is a gendered language. You can't escape that, right? Um, and so um, Hebrew, whenever there is a, uh, a noun, is given a masculine or feminine word. And so there are those Jews who want to reject the gendered God. And so they say, yeah, it speaks of, of him or her. But we know it's not a him or her. That's just how language works in Hebrew. And there's others who love the gender divinity, like in the, in the Kabbalistic world. They love the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God. They love the male presence of God. Now, that doesn't mean God is male or female. It just means there's a manifestation of divinity, which has a male or female manifestation. Okay, so that's one comparative religion point here. Now, now let me state another, another difference, which is that a radical feminist, a radical feminist wants nothing to do with religion at all, because religion itself is, um, is, uh, is, is, uh, is entirely cultivated throughout the millennia by men, not by women. Now, of course, women were deeply involved, um, but what got recorded, whose ideas were written down, always, always, almost always men's ideas. And so, why would I want to be a part of this tradition that, that women didn't have a, have a, have a fair share in, uh, in, in creating Christianity or creating Judaism as a religion, right? Um, I want to reject the whole religion because it's all fundamentally patriarchal and it has no value for me today. So, we're also, so while we're bracketing today the anti-feminists, we're also bracketing the radical feminists. And why are we bracketing that? Because if the radical feminist took a, took a, a, a purity approach, he or she would also have to reject participation or complicity in everything, every system that was predominantly, which is every system virtually, predominantly cultivated by men, such as participating in capitalism, participating in American government um, and with benefits and defense, whatever the case is. Um, oh, Vicky writes, but the language in our sacred text is gendered and God is referred to in math. Oh, oh, I wonder if, you're, if, if, you're, if your volume was off for a little bit. Um, yes. The, the, uh, yeah, as, yes, as shared, all, all language in Hebrew in our text is, is, is gender. And so um, God, is, God is, is spoken of in the masculine and the feminine, um, in both in gendered language, by necessity of the language. And yet no thinker takes it seriously that God is male or female, only that there is energy or manifestations fr from there. Yeah, thank you for that point, Vicky. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so um, we're going to bracket those two, those two uh, extremes. Um, and yet, I'm, I'm not delegitimizing by calling them extremes. They both have validity. The anti-feminist, once again, who believes the gender distinctions is crucial, and the anti-participation uh, in anything that was, uh, was predominantly cultivated through patriarchy. Um, so now, that was all by way of introduction. So now what we're, so, and so who do I want to look at today? Primarily through the lens of, of Tamar Ross and Judith Bosco. I could have chosen others um, who are along a, a complex spectrum, but Tamar Ross represents a traditionalist feminism and Judith Bosco represents a liberal feminism. And let's see how we're gonna get over there. Okay, so friends, among the great leaders in Jewish tradition, we have found countless women, including some of the most famous biblical figures like our four matriarchs, as well as Miriam and Devorah and Esther and Ruth, We'll also find Bruria in the Talmud, Golda Meir as Prime Minister of Israel, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an icon of a commitment to justice. We can learn from the political activists, Emma Goldman, Anna Frank, Hannah, Hannah Senesh, and the biblical scholar, Nechama Leibowitz. There are countless, countless Jewish women and throughout Jewish history that we should know about. And it behooves us to familiarize ourselves with their stories and their teachings. Nonetheless, a gap remains. As in every society, the voices of Jewish men have dominated the history. In as early a source as the biblical text, 
women were already described as resisting their exclusion. Okay, now let me be clear. The reason I'm not calling this early feminism is because it's anachronistic. But women are already protesting exclusion. So let's visit the, a story once again, the daughters of Slavchad, Benot Slavchad from Bamidbar. The daughters of Slavchad, of, of Menashe family, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Menashe, son of Yosef, came forward. The names of the daughters were Machla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza. They stood before Moshe Rabbeinu, Eliezer the priest, and the chieftains, and the whole assembly in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's faction, which banded together against God, but died for his own sin. And he has left no sons. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. Moshe brought the case before God. God says to Moshe, the plea of Slavchad's daughters is just. You should give them a hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen. Transfer their father's share to them. Further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a man dies without leaving a son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall assign his property to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall assign his property to his family's brothers. If, he has, if his father had no brothers, you shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan, and he shall inherit it. This shall be the law of procedures for the Israelites in accordance with God's command to Moshe. Now, people who know nothing about Torah think that it's about ritual primarily, right? The Torah is going to give rules about how to pray and, and what to believe about God. But in fact, the Torah is mostly about justice. Um, it's mostly about justice. Yes, there's ritual in there, but it's usually about societal matters. And here they're dealing with the justice of laws of inheritance, the laws of inheritance. And the women say, hey, what's going on here? We're excluded. We're excluded. And Moshe says, and, Mo and Moshe says, um, uh, this is beyond my pay grade. You know, I'm not your rabbi. I, I, I still have access to, to God. It's beyond my pay grade. Let's see what God says. And God says, Benotz Lachem are right. They're right. They shouldn't have been excluded. Moshe didn't know the answer. The Torah hadn't done this. And so we see a tikkun. We see a repair. We see a gezerah. That in this case, now let me be clear what they didn't do here. What they didn't do here was make men and equal men and women equal in inheritance. What they did here was state that women can't be passed over if they didn't have brothers. The assumption was that the oldest son is going to get the largest inheritance. He's going to take care of the family. He's going to take over his father's estate, let him inherit the money. But what happens if there's no oldest son or, or any sons at all? Who's going to take responsibility for us? The women are going to lose out. The money's going to pass. So they said, let's make sure the money, let's make sure the money goes through. So they argue, they bring their case to Moshe and they win. They win. So here's a fascinating midrash, fascinating midrash that interprets this biblical passage, blaming the injustice on men, claiming that God, of course, loves women and men equally. Here's what it says in Sifre Bamidbar. I love this. I love this midrash. I just found this recently. And Benot Slavchad drew near, right? Look at that picture with her. <laughs> They're coming with their question. <laughs> when the daughters of Slavchad heard that the land of Israel was being divided among the tribes with portions given to the males, but not to the females, they gathered together to seek counsel. They said, the mercies of God are not like the mercies of people. People have more concern for males than females. But the one who said and brought forth the world is not like this. Rather, God's concern is for both males and females. God's concern is for all. As it is said, God gives sustenance to all flesh and who gives beasts their food. And God is good to all and God's mercy is upon all God's works. So this Midrash says sexism is a problem coming from men, not from God. God believes in equality and humans have perverted that. So too often the term feminist gets co-opted to mean something that it's not. In the minds of the opponents, feminist and feminism are catch-all terms reserved only for individuals who they view loudly and bluntly seek to destroy centuries of gender norms without respect to the past. This isn't the case historically, and it surely isn't the case in the present time. Furthermore, the need for feminism isn't only social, but spiritual as well. One of the great tragedies of human history, and perhaps of the human condition, is that the needs of men and boys have been consistently prioritized over those of women and girls. Wherever one looks, gender inequality is endemic 
to every segment of societal and communal life, from politics, business, the arts, and academia, to religious institutions and major league sports, women are undervalued for their contributions, their effort, and their natural talent. Discrimination against female workers is rampant in the labor force, despite women waking up nearly half of the working population. And, and though there is some evidence that the pay gap is narrowing, the notion that women should be paid less than their male counterparts still persists. But even beyond the confines of the workplace, there are still lasting issues with how women are portrayed and depicted in modern culture. Despite normative societal factors, female bodies are used as platforms for merchandise, political demagoguery, and empty glamour. Millions of women are left vulnerable because their needs are not seen to be on par with those of men. But through it all, to be a socially conscious feminist means that one recognizes sexism and calls it out fervently. It means seeing sexism in the workplace and combating it forcefully. No one should be treated as inferior based on gender or supposed gender, gender roles. To be a feminist means one sees the plight of women and stands in solidarity with them, whether or not the observer is a woman. In the Midrash about Slavchad's daughters, the Talmudic rabbis explain that while people may have the capacity to be sexist, God completely and utterly rejects such views. God understands that the different gendered beings of creation have real differences, yet he or she des desires equal rights for both, since they are created with equal dignity. We are instructed to follow God's compassionate ways, and in so doing, we are not calling out injustice and rooting it out for the benefit of future generations, that we're not only, but also fulfilling the holy mitzvah of halachta bedrachat, imitatio dei. While in prior eras, the understanding of revelation was still evolving alongside historical progress, embracing a discriminatory ideology in our time is to reject the God of Israel. Let me state that again. To embrace a discriminatory theology is to reject the God of Israel. In every tradition and in every civilization, women have been historically marginalized. With the advent of the Enlightenment, new challenges and opportunities emerged for women. Many men and women resisted and still resist, breaking from traditional gender roles. Others call for women's rights and even women's liberation. The Jewish world is no different. Others call for women's rights and even women's liberation. Secular Jews, by and large, often take equality for granted. Ultra-Orthodox Jews, by and large, take for granted difference and separation. But what about everyone in between? How have Jews affiliated with Reform, Conservative, and Modern Orthodox movements? And those movements themselves, among other Jews and other streams of contemporary Judaism, engage with Jewish identity and Jewish texts vis-a-vis the rise of feminism. Dr. Judith Plaskow, who's crit uh, critiqued Cynthia Ozick for trying to help Jewish tradition remain intact while also arguing for women's inclusion. She argues that women can't have their cake and eat it too by retaining the old Judaism while at the same time experiencing the new Judaism, she writes. The fact Ozick is reluctant to explore the theological underpinnings of women's status places her in the mainstream of Jewish feminism. The Jewish women's movement of the past decade has been and remains a civil rights movement rather than a movement for women's liberation. It has focused on getting women's, women a piece of the Jewish pie. It has not wanted to bake a new one. Okay, so I want folks to understand um, how radical this is. And by calling it radical, I'm not delegitimizing. I'm just amplifying what she would want to be viewed as radical. Again, we have anti-feminists. We have traditional feminists. We have radical feminists, paradigm-shifting feminists. And then we have those who um, uh, uh, would reject participating in anything, essentially, um, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't cultivated equally by women. Uh, of course, there's, it's a very small camp, uh, as we acknowledge. Now, Plaskow, and by the way, I did an interesting VBM interview with her recently, if you want to hear more from her. Um, what she is saying here is she's critiquing, critiquing the great author, Cynthia Ozick. Um, and, um, and Ozick said, women's inclusion. I love Judaism and I want girls and women to love it also and participate equally in it, right? And why does Plaskow critique that? She says, no, no, that Judaism you're talking about was, was cultivated by men. And thus it is all to be suspect and has to be changed. I don't wanna eat from that cake. I don't want women and girls to have half of the, half of the, of the pie. 
of a pie that, that women didn't even bake, right? I want a new pie, a pie that only women bake, right? And be a part of that. So this is basically a rejection of Jewish tradition. Um, he would claim it's not fully, um, it's not fully, but it is, it is, it is a, a really a reforming or a total shift in what Judaism is in order that, um, uh, in order that it's not only women's inclusion, but women's liberation. Okay, let's continue in her voice. Of the issues that present themselves for our attention, halakha has been at the center of feminist agitation for religious change. And it is to halakha that Ozik turns in the hope of altering women's situation. Ozik is like, oh, we need to change Jewish law. The Jewish law doesn't include women, let's change the law. And Plaskell's like, no, the whole law is corrupt. The whole law is male-driven. Underlying specific halakhot and outlasting their amelioration or rejection is an assumption of women's otherness far more basic than the laws in which it finds expression. If women are not part of the congregation, if we stand passively under the chuppah, if even in the reform movement, we have become rabbis only in the last 10 years, that is because men and not women with them define Jewish humanity. Men are the actors in religious communal life because they are normative Jews. Women are other than the norm. We are less than fully human. So let's put this in racial justice terms. Most racial justice activists would say, you know what, America has a, has a racist history and racism is rampant today, but let's, this is America. And, and I wanna be a part of America and I wanna reform America to not be racist. What a radical racial justice activist would say is I'm only buying from black folks. I'm only going to bakeries that black people run. I'm only buying my food from black people. I, I, I won't give any money to anything that a white person runs, right? Because the fundamental problem is America is fundamentally corrupt and never can be reformed because white people are in charge. And so I'm only gonna put money through um, avenues where white people have no, nothing involved. So that's pretty similar to what Plaskow is kind of saying here too. Basically saying like, I don't wanna participate in Jewish law and tradition because that's what men corrupted. I wanna be a part of something totally different that men never put their hands on, okay? Now this, is, this might be very compelling to many. Say so like, yeah, like Judaism, ugh, like why would I wanna, like I'm 25 years old and like Judaism doesn't speak to me besides like, Men probably made this thing up anyways, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be in in in, in a different circle. Okay, now please don't hear me diminishing anything Plaskow is saying. Like she has serious critiques and serious questions, and is a great scholar, and 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 her critique is important. Is that like look that you're trying to tweak a system where women were fundamentally always considered the other, right? But that would be no different than becoming a judge in in American an American judicial system. If you're a judge in the American judicial system as a woman. What's the precedent you're using? What's the constitution you're using? Men wrote the American constitution. The precedent is almost all from men who worked in the judicial system. So, may, so a woman would have to say, following Plasco's reasoning, I, I'll never be a judge or a lawyer because I don't want to operate within American legal system that was ultimately propped up by men. Or I won't work at a corporation that a man built or whatever the case is. So her critiques are interesting and where those critiques lead are also raise big, big challenges, okay? We're gonna continue um, along a similar thought. In Dr. Plaskow's book, Standing Again at Sinai, Judaism from a Feminist Perspective, I recommend the book. Um, she's basically saying, I want a new Sinai, right? I, I, I'm not, I don't wanna go back to the old Sinai, right? I wanna stand again at a new Sinai. Um, uh, right, I, I, so Eileen's point is interesting. If you wanna make changes, do you wanna create something different from the outside or do you want to try to change it on the inside? So I recommend her book, Standing Again at Sinai, to understand her points. She explores just how empty Jewish tradition can be for women, given, in her view, how it was crafted entirely by men. Taking a similar approach, Professor Rachel Adler, someone I'm very close with, um, emerged, emerged from the Orthodox world, but completely re rejected it, and spent her career teaching theology in the Reform world. She's actually just retiring, literally right now, like this month, um, and, and moving but she was teaching at Hebrew Union College, uh, feminist theology. And he writes about how deep the challenges are for Jewish feminists. Here, you go, here she goes. Being a Jewish woman is very much like being Alice at the Hatter's Tea party. We did not participate in making the rules, nor were we there at the beginning of the party. When our external reality is absurdity and madness, it is difficult for us to retain internal co coherence. We begin to ask, who are we really? Are we being invited by Jewish men to re-covenant, to forge a covenant which will address the inequalities of women's position in Judaism? But we may ask ourselves, 
Have we ever had a covenant in the first place as women Jews? Are women Jews? The problem of method methodolatry, like like method uh, making a method in idolatry, method idolatry cannot be dismissed as an orthodox problem. It is a meta-halachic problem. Touching all Jews who believe the tradition possesses some relevance to modern Jewish life. Any wedding, for example, at which the groom says, behold, you are sanctified to me, mekadeshitly, with this ring according to the laws of Moshe and Israel. And any divorce issued unilaterally by the husband <coughs> is utilizing the categories of acquisition and manumission, in which divorces which men and women are equals could be constructed only by uprooting those entire categories of the tradition. Okay, so let's see what Rachel Adler is saying now. Rachel Adler said, is saying, oh, you might have thought you won because you left, you're not Orthodox. So, oh, the Orthodox are not feminists, but I'm reform, I'm conservative. We're enlightened feminists. She says, no, it's not so easy. You're gonna have to uproot a lot if you're gonna wanna actually get to that place you wanna get to. Orthodoxy is gonna keep it all intact. Reform and conservative is gonna make some changes here Right, but the extent of the changes you're gonna to have to make fundamental to a kosher wedding, fundamental to a kosher divorce and beyond are going to have to, up, if you wanna uproot the patriarchy involved there, you're gonna to have to uproot a lot more than, uh, than you might imagine. And so Rachel Adler's saying, um, now that I'm out of orthodoxy and I'm not concerned with the orthodoxy problems, the feminist problem still exists. It still exists. It is community-wide. So of course, fem Jewish feminism is not limited to the reforming conservative world. The Orthodox feminist, perhaps the founder of Orthodox feminism as we know it, Blue Greenberg, wrote in the early 1980s, she is married to Yitz Greenberg. I wouldn't normally point out who someone's spouse is, but, but they're a tag team in this effort. Um, I do not wish to imply that Jewish women were oppressed. This is far from the truth. Now, now you're gonna see her orthodoxy be a part of her feminism. She wants to keep the Torah intact while she wants feminism. I don't wish to imply that, that Jewish women were oppressed. This is far from the truth. Given the historically universal stratification of the sexes, plus the model of the Jewish woman as enabler and the exclusive male rabbinic option of interpreting the law, there could have been widespread abuses of the powerless, but this did not happen. In fact, the reverse is true. Throughout rabbinic history, one observes a remarkably benign and caring attitude towards women. She continues, Nevertheless, there is a need today to redefine the status of women in certain areas of Jewish law. First, a benign and caring stance is not discernible in every last instance of rabbinic legislation. Second, paternalism is not what women are seeking nowadays, not even the women of the traditional Jewish community. Increasingly, such women are be beginning to ask questions about equality, about a more mature sharing of responsibility, about divesting the power of halachic interpretation and legislation outfits singular maleness. Okay. So what Blue Greenberg is arguing here is that, um, oh, I'm sorry, the techniques of reinterpretation are built right into the system. It was the proper use of these techniques that enabled rabbinic Judaism to be continuous with the past, even as it redefined and redirected the present and future. The techniques are allowed for diversity, for allowances based on the local usage for a certain kind of pluralism. Where there was, here's her most famous line, where there was a rabbinic will, there was a halakhic way. She basically says, if the rabbis want feminism, the rabbis will do feminism. Where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halakhic way. So Blue Greenberg, on, on, on a pole opposite from Plaskow, is saying Judaism was so good to women, right? Built into Jewish law, you would have thought, you would have thought a total abuse of women in the, in the Torah, among the rabbis. You would have thought they would have just run over women. Yes, of course, men and women weren't, weren't equal like they weren't in every society. They had different roles in society. But the rights that women are granted by biblical law and rabbinic law, she says, are, are, are amazing. That, that they were cultivated even though women didn't participate. And, and, yet, and yet, there are still problems there. And yet, still, young women don't want to be a part of something patriarchal. And so we do need to evolve to the moment. And yet, we can keep the Torah intact. The Torah has built into it the tools to evolve. It's going to evolve to this moment. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can love Torah and maintain Torah and tradition, and we can evolve to be feminists, right? Plaskow says, nope, can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want feminism, you're going to have to uproot the Torah as it was. Raquel Adler's in the middle. She says, the problems are huge. The problems are huge. We're going to land in different places. She's kind of more conservative. 
in a capital C conservative in the more kind of traditional egalitarian world, you might say, um, where she sees the problems of halacha, but wants to keep Torah intact in many ways, rather than feel it needs to be fundamentally transformed. Blue Greenberg doesn't think traditional Judaism missed the mark. Yes, there were errors, but overall Judaism is wise and compassionate, she believes. Nonetheless, there are major opportunities for greater inclusion while honoring the beauty of the tradition passed down. Similarly, Professor Tamar Ross, who we've had at VBM and we'll have again also, and we, Rachel Adler as well, all these people, um, wishes to keep rabbinic Judaism intact, but also, quote unquote, expand the palace of Torah. Here's how she puts it to be more inclusive. If feminist morality is more than a passing fad, it is likely that the interpretive tradition will discover that some of the values expressed by the feminists are indeed those of the Torah and should be pursued accordingly. The fluidity of meaning that allows for this does not require that we understand that the Sinaitic revelation was incomplete. Other feminist values may be considered as opposing the values of the Torah and as such should be rejected. Still other matters may remain in the realm of the permissible but not obligatory. Such a solution could be no less effective than claims to divine intervention in history in avoiding the theological pitfall of faulting the existing biblical text. Sufficient to this task should be an underlying assumption that the multiple meanings inherent in a divine message become apparent only through a protracted process of rabbinic inter interpretation. Building off a teaching of Rav Cook in a Hegelian fashion, Professor Ross argues that we can both keep our past that was beautiful and right for its time while embracing a new model that is more right for our time in continuity with the past. Torah becomes greater as it progresses. Oh my goodness, I have so much from Tamar Ross, but in the interest of time, I do wanna get the conversation and, and there's just so much to say here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut it short uh, for her. Um, let me give one more quote from her uh, and then I'll skip the bigger one. Uh, Professor Ross writes, as is to be expected of a religious university in Israel, Bar, where she, she teaches at Bar-Ilan, Bar-Ilan boasts an unusually high proportion of Orthodox women teaching and studying in the program. Despite their obvious awareness of radical feminist theory with regard to sex and gender and their preoccupation with issues of women's equality, none of them appears to be a purist in this matter. Although they welcome unprecedented opportunities for women to study religious texts, engage in active careers outside the home and militate for equal rights in home and marriage, many of them cover their hair, wear skirts rather than pants, attend synagogues with separate men's and women's sections and recite traditional prayers suffused with male-centered God's imagery. They also tend to have families with, with more than the average number of children, although they might typically assume a greater degree than is usual in Israeli society of sharing with their spouses in child rearing and in the assumption of responsibility for other domestic tasks. In other words, though they circumvent sharply stereoty stereotypical gender distinctions, such as women continue, such women continue, at least on the symbolic and ritual level, to observe many of the practices that perpetuate the more enduring sexual differentiations against which radical feminists rail against, and which it claims are responsible for continued inequality between the sexes. Okay, her next quote is amazing, but in the interest of time, I'm going to hold back on it and um, and move us towards uh, and move us towards a conclusion and, and conversation. In the past half century. North American Jewish feminists across various denominations have made leaps and bounds in ensuring the inclusion of women in ritual life, as well as in the elevation of women to positions of respect and communal leadership. More recently, Jewish feminism has grown to address more systemic issues, such as advocacy for comprehensive forms of sex education, and by trying to address the plight of agunot. There is certainly much more work still to be done in all of these areas, in each of the denominations, and yet the ritual concerns, all of which are essential, are too often the concerns of the most privileged. As Jews living in an increasingly globalized world, we must widen the umbrella of our concerns to include and indeed prioritize the cries of women and girls around the world in bondage. Grave injustices plague our sisters, both at home and abroad. We cannot ignore their plight and other, injust other justice issues. We dare not only focus on the more parochial ritual issues. What sociologists call the feminization of poverty reflects the reality that throughout the world, two out of three impoverished adults are women. Let that sink in for a moment. 
Two out of three impoverished adults around the world are women. More than half of the world's food is produced by women, often while maintaining the home, yet these women only earn a fraction of what men make. These injustices, among many others, necessitate a response from our community. American Jews, regardless of their gender, must be at the forefront of campaigns concerning HIV, micro-lending to women, education for girls, and women's health. In doing so, we realize the teaching of Proverbs 31, strength and dignity are her clothing. She opens her mouth with wisdom. Unfortunately, we do not have to look overseas to find oppression and systemic discrimination against women. One pressing issue here in the US is paycheck fairness. Currently on average, average women between the ages of 45 and 64 who work full time earn only 72% of the salary of men of the same age. Working in the same position would earn. This inequality often compromises women's abilities to meet their own needs, to provide for their children's future and to plan for their retirement. In a similar sense, the equitable labor problem is found in the Jewish community as well. Approximately 75% of the Jewish communal workforce in America consists of women. Get that? 75% of the Jewish communal workforce in America is women. Yet the number of women participating on Jewish nonprofit boards and at the pinnacle of Jewish leadership is astonishingly, astonishingly low at about 25%. Women constitute roughly 70% of the staffs of Jewish federations. Yet as of 2008, not one of the top 20 federation leaders was a woman. That was the stat I found from 2008. I, 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 perhaps it's changed in the last 13 years. If there's a woman CEO of a federation, let me know. Additionally, maternity leave at Jewish organizations is deficient. A recent survey exposed that only about 35% of Jewish organizations offer paid time off to mothers after giving birth. Can you believe that? 35%. We can return to the earliest text of our tradition to help us comprehend the biblical origin of radical injustice towards women and their plight. But we can also look at those same texts to provide us with models of how we, can, how we must act in our present world when faced with injustice. Eve, Chava, the first woman, was cursed with the pain of childbearing after the sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Adam, the first man, was given his own curse. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread, right? Women from the start cursed with the pain of labor, of child labor, men with the pain of labor in the field. How can we stand by while women of the world, daughters of Eve, are burdened with the curses of both Adam and Eve? It is by and large the women around the world who bear the major brunt of agricultural labor, who continue to die in childbirth, and who continue to be infected with AIDS by promiscuous men. We should look to the biblical leader and heroine Esther for inspiration. Esther risked, risked her life on behalf of the broader community in response to Mordecai's rallying cry. And, and who knows if you have reached this royal position to address a crisis such as this. American Jews have attained unprecedented influence, just like Esther in the court of King Ahasuerus. And we must channel our influence toward addressing these issues. Who knows if we have reached this privileged position for a crisis such as this. As Esther well understood, all of our achievements will be, will be lost in the abyss of history if we fail to help our brothers and sisters around the world in need. We, Jewish feminists and otherwise, must unite to address the needs beyond our own gates. We must join the biblical prophetess Miriam in her universal song of freedom. Furthermore, the above quoted Midrash reminds us that in our own day, we dare not neglect the drowning nations as we celebrate our own victories. The song for equality must be heard across the seas. Only then can we fully rejoice at the liberated crossing of our own proverbial Red Sea. Okay, friends, that was way too long. It was 44 minutes, but um, I could not start to address the debates of Jewish feminism without giving the full spectrum of, uh, <laughs> of uh, or, or a relatively full spectrum. So let's hear from you all. Let's, not, uh, let's hear from a number of you. Yes, please, Lauren. Um, thanks for trying to give an overview of something that could actually be a full year course. It's, it's amazing. Um, separating from civil rights things and going just to the spiritual and religious, I'm twice your age. As somebody who grew up in the modern Orthodox movement, I have seen amazing changes. 
I mean, and especially in Israel, especially like in Yerushalayim, but even when I lived in Zechot, there are partnership minions there. And um, even some of the ones, shows that are more yeshiva-ish, like copied Avi Weiss's thing of handing the women the Sefer Torah to take around in their section. You know, I mean, there's so much. But when I think like when I studied Pardes, women rebellion, women are getting um, smicha from Lindenbaum and from Maharat. And, you know, in Yerushalayim, both Rabbi um, Shlomo Riskin and, and Rabbi Benny Lau appointed female rabbis as their assistants. So it's come a long way. Um, I used to, whenever I went to Washington Heights, I used to attend the women's uh, tefillah network, which is another way of dealing with it, just having women for women's services, which is really amazing. But, you know, I, I think the main thing that's left, and, and I took a class on this with Rabbi Mish Hammer, Kasoy, who teaches at uh, Pardes, if you know Mish. Um, so the, the main thing that really has to be dealt with halakhically is the whole issue of get. And she believes, and I believe, if the Rebbeim really, really wanted to, it could be solved. One of the things is, of course, the new woman's, um, it's not a women, it, it's the modern Orthodox um, ketubah that includes, you know, forbidding the man from uh, a get. And anyways, I'm kind of jumbled up here with what I'm saying, but. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. And I, I made a few notes here to respond to later. Let's hear from some, hear from some others. Scott, your um, your um, section or reading from numbers was interesting, right? Like, it made me think, like, well, first of all, are there um, many more such instances of that in the Torah where some of these issues are being kind of discussed, and I just mowed over them, glossed over them over the years, and don't recall them, or is that like a, a real exception? to the rule. And is there any historical um, research on who wrote the books of the Old Testament and how many, if any, were written by women? I would, just as a historical question. Okay, good, good, Scott. Um, now, when you ask, are there more passages like that? Are you, are you referring specifically to the feminicide or cases where Moshe doesn't know the answer and then they, they change the law? Uh, feminicide, yes. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Okay, making a note of that, both of your questions. Let's go on to someone else. Um, Shmuley, Vicky said, and I tend to agree, that there is so much on this topic. Perhaps you could devote three or four week session and give us background reading so we have a better idea and then we can discuss it into all the different realms. As a senior Jewish lady who grew up in the reform movement, all I can say is my views and my thinking has dramatically changed over the years. Yeah, thank you, Eileen. Yeah, there is, and uh, thank you, Vicki. Yeah, there is so much there. If we look just from the lens of history, there could be a whole course on the history. Then if we looked at the um, um, just the ritual side, understanding the rituals and the evolutions um, through the reform movement, conservative movement, orthodox movement, what, 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 uh, how the wedding ceremony evolves, how the divorce ceremony evolves, the prayer starts. Most people think about prayer, but obviously there's much more ritual beyond prayer. Um, and then there's the societal side and the communal side. And then there's the theology side, feminist theology that ranges, we think, we, some people who, who, haven't, who haven't studied this stuff think feminism means one thing and there's one voice that represent what's, what it represents what it means. And as we'll see, as we saw from just the five thinkers we, we looked at here, there's a whole range of views. And that was just on, on change, on halakha, tradition, not even looking at theology and, and how we construct God and how we think about God. So yeah, thank you for that suggestion. I would certainly, if I was going to be, I would either want to bring in uh, a scholar who was a woman to teach it or co-teach it with a woman, 
rather than it uh, it be it be it be just me. But I would at the least be fascinated and interested in participating in it as a feminist myself. And uh, so thank you for that that suggestion. I think that's great, Cheryl. Truly. I have um, a lot of feelings about, about this whole thing. Um, from ritual, ritually, I think the most would be ritually because <clears throat> having an adult bat mitzvah at the time that the uh, conservative movement was changing, um, rethinking uh, women participation, I have fought so hard for my place as, as a total equal in my synagogue, in my, you know, in, in my community. So I feel like um, I, I, I have something, I have feelings about just women's minyanim and things like that. I wanna be a part of the whole. I don't wanna be separated out. That's just my, I mean, that's just my particular feeling and maybe how I came up through uh, the, through the um, through my studying and everything, um, you know, and and fighting so hard for the right to participate as a full partner in your know, ritual, full partner in in my synagogue. Yeah, you know, thank you, Cheryl. It is it is very hard for um, those with male privilege to truly access that experience um, of of how many doors were shut. And the truth is, it's hard for young women today. Uh, in their 20s or teens to understand the battles that their mothers or grandmothers uh, had to battle on, only a few decades ago or a decade ago or still battle today. Um, and, so, um, uh, and so sometimes something symbolic may represent equality, but those who can see past it, see the barriers are still very much there. And this can be very triggering. I mean, I'd love to hear your story, Cheryl, sometime. Uh, you know, very triggering about this. And as, as um, uh, not only seeing this now through the lens of my of my wife, but also through the lens of my daughters. Um, I, I have a new access point each day to process the way that they're kind of encountering this this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, Vicky, I think you're about to jump in. I was going to say that what you said before, to follow up on what Cheryl said, that this is a very complicated issue and it cuts across many, many, issues, many, many, many other very complicated issues. Um, for me, the spiritual part is interesting that my, my um, exposure to and understanding of the more traditional way of, of uh, Judaism, modern orthodoxy, let's say, has made me less concerned personally about ritual. Uh, in terms of my place in the synagogue, I see it more as a, as a space issue. I wanna have a spiritual space for myself. Um, so I'm not so hung up with the actual doing of the particular rituals. I'm okay with that. Communally, I had a different experience. So communally, institutionally, I see places for women's leadership are important um, in the Jewish world. Some of the statistics that you gave, uh, you know, are, 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 are telling about what's going on. And lastly, um, having had some exposure to gender studies and having studied with people like Rachel Adler, um, I think theologically, we do have to look at the text. We have to go back and see what's there and understand what's there and then see how to interpret it in terms of where we are today. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for that, all that. And um, to, you know, to unpack something we touched on a little earlier among emerging, um, emerging uh, um, you know, feminist uh, scholarship um, is the reminder that, um, first of all, that there is no one way to be a feminist. There's huge diversity involved in there of what, um, just like, you know, you meet a black person and that doesn't mean that what they want is what every black person wants, right? Women, every man wants different things from other men. Women want different things from other, other women. So it's actually very rich. And in fact, many women um, want uh, what men have. They want equality. They want to do the same stuff. Others, they say, no, I am nothing like a man. I, I experience my spirituality much richer among women. And I, I my, my, my feminine, my feminine spirituality is fundamentally different than masculine uh, spirituality. Um, and I want, I want to be in different spaces to access that. They want to be in all women's groups, both, both, both very liberal women and very traditional women. And so there's very different ways to experience this stuff. Now, to go back to something that Lauren said earlier in, in the Haredi world, um, feminism has started in the ultra-Orthodox world. They wouldn't call it feminism, but do you know where it's emerged in Israel? There are some rabbis that have other words for, the, for, for these, these gentlemen, which I won't use here um, or anywhere really, but um, other words that are less pleasant. 
that um, ban women from getting secular degrees and ban women from entering the workforce. Now, what's happening in that world, in the Haredi world, is the men are all learning in Kolel. They're learning Talmud all day. And there's 10, 12 kids, and they live in deep poverty. And so the women are smart enough to say, as they should be, they say, I want to go get a degree and get a job to support my family. Like, what am I going to do? If, if, if the rabbi says my husband can't work, someone's got to work. And the rabbi says, no, it's forbidden because you're going to be influenced by liberal ideas at the university, or you're going to be influenced by non-Orthodox people at the workforce. You're forbidden. And those women from a place of economic need are pushing back. And so the feminism emerging in the Haredi world against the rabbinic establishment is about access to the workplace. It's about access to secular study. They're, they're not asking to go study Kant and, and philosophy. They're asking for computer science degrees. They're asking for classroom education, teacher degrees, and they're being excluded from that. And so that is going that that exclusion is going to lead to the birth of a much richer feminist movement in that world as well. As well. Scott, to go to your two points, first of all, but note there are many cases where Moshe doesn't know the answer, and so they they or they change the law already in the Torah. Um, to give another interesting example is where. Um, Two, uh, two and a half tribes don't want to live in Israel. They want to live in the diaspora and they make a deal. They change the law. Okay, you go fight with us and then you can go live on the Jordan side, right? So they, there's a, there are tweaks to get, but on the women's front like this, this is a, a, a rare case. Benot Slavchad is a rare case. Who wrote the Torah? Well, if you ask um, Orthodox Jews, they'll say God wrote, God. it's all the word of God. And yes, Moshe is writing it by hand, but it's the word of God directly. And if you ask um, ask a liberal Jew, um, th then um, yes, there might be some divinely inspired information, but the ideas are are, are human written, and human written it's entirely men. Um, there are women in the Talmud who are sages. There are of course very prominent women in the Torah, but um, they weren't they weren't writing this stuff. It was men who were, who who were involved in writing anything. Most men were illiterate in the ancient world. Um, very few men knew how to read and write at all. Um, and most certainly women didn't, unless they were from a very elitist rich family where they had access to such a thing. And so, yeah, they weren't a part of the academy as such. Okay, time for one more question, I thought. How about someone, anyone we didn't hear from yet? Uh, Della or, uh, or someone we did hear from? Oh yeah, Vicky, thank you for the schnitzel recommendation. <laughs> oh, Della's mic is not working. Okay, that's fine. Anyone else want to weigh in here? Just a suggestion, such as really maybe at some point you can address the whole problem of Aguna because that's an interesting oh, yeah. discussion all on its own. Oh, yeah, right. Maybe that can be one of these. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Okay, so friends, to conclude here, let me let me see if there's any way to wrap this up. Um, it, it, Jewish inclusivity is a very new idea. In the last uh, decade, you talk about LGBTQ inclusion. Yeah, there were gay synagogues for many, since the 60s, right? But um, inclusion in a, in a synagogue, a, you know, a, a pride flag or the like, th this is a pretty new idea, right? The idea of, of Jews in color, Jews of color um, being specifically targeted to engage um, is a pretty new idea in, in, you know, in America. Um, let's say the last decade where this is kind of being targeted. Um, not to mention inclusivity of those um, who have disabilities, having ramps built in, you know, structuring synagogues that people have equal dignity and equal access based on disabilities. Um, and of course, the first level of inclusivity goes to goes to women, and even that is not so um, is not so is not so old. Um, again, the first woman rabbi in America is not ordained until. Um, until, the, the, until the 70s there. So we're only looking at the last 50 years of rabbis themselves. And of course it goes beyond ordination itself. And then we, we see the, the issue today. And, um, and for some, they say, you know what? Like, I want what my grandparents had. I don't care if I feel more or less included. I wanna be in that space. If it feels powerful, it feels spiritual. If I, if I can hear well and see well, you know, I wanna be, I have the experience they had more or less. Um, others say, you know what, that doesn't work. Like I, I want to sit with my spouse or with my partner. I want to, I want to have equal access and equal opportunity. In other cases, I want my daughter to be called to the Torah also. And so there's, these are just the behaviors in the synagogue. The theologies and, and traditions underlying how we get there are deeply rooted in how we view the, the system at large, how we view the system at large, 
and how we understand what Judaism is fundamentally about and where it's headed. An Orthodox feminist like Tamar Ross or like Blue Greenberg thinks you can have the Torah intact and progress, right? Someone like Plaskow or, uh, or, or go even further, it's like a Judith Butler who doesn't want to engage, Judith Butler who doesn't want to engage in religion. You know, why would I engage in religion? You know, this is a, uh, this is a, a straight male enterprise, you know, from its history. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, or Plaskow who wants to engage but wants a new cake, you know, baked. And then there's the Rachel Adler and many others like her in the middle who really see the problems, name the, name the problems, um, but also believe Judaism is powerful, wise, and compassionate, and spiritual, and don't want to lose that as changes are made. So friends, much more to say. Um, this is all complex and can easily be, uh, I can, it can easily be offensive. So if I said anything uh, that stepped on a toe or seemed to dismiss any idea that you hold, please forgive me for that. And I look forward to next week. Next week, friends, we are up to Karl Marx versus Ayn Rand. Karl Marx and Ayn Rand, oh, socialism and libertarian <laughs> capitalism. We're, we're taking going head to head. Ayn Rand and Marx thought they would never meet in the boxing ring before, but they're meeting next week. And I hope you'll be there. <laughs>